This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From 2014 to 2016, I co-led a Twitter community with Ellen Mahoney of Sea Change Mentoring called TCK Chat. As former third culture kids ourselves, we built a vibrant online community of adult TCKs from around the world to share their experiences of growing up across different borders and its impact on a range of issues. You may not know this, but one of the inspirations for the Black Expat was TCK Chat. As a founder and a moderator, I saw the conversations that were happening with the hashtag, and I saw the nuances as it related to race and nationality. In this episode, you'll meet two women who are very much part of that community, both who are Black, African, and TCKs. Stephanie Tadera, who was a moderator throughout most of its run, is an adult TCK from Zimbabwe. She spent her childhood in Malawi, France, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, as well as her native country, as her father worked in the oil and gas industry. Astrid Chetou, who is Senegalese, spent her childhood in multiple African nations as a result of her father's employment with the United Nations. And as you'll hear shortly, it was intentional on his part to keep his family's expat moves within the African continent. Both have had their lives shaped by international mobility, they experience as children, and we talk identity, privilege, class, international schools, and more. We often don't hear the experiences of Black TCKs, and even less from African ones, but you get a chance now. Welcome to The Chatter. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so excited for this episode because this is probably one of my favorite topics when we talk about moving in international life and the fact that we're talking about third culture kids and the fact that I got two of my favorite people from the TCK chat world who are here. And so I am so excited for this episode. Um, Hey, Stephanie, how are you? Hi, great to be here, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Astrid, how are you doing? I'm doing well, as good as you can be in 2020, I would say. <laughs> oh my God. How about no, you? Look, y'all already know I'm in America. So, <laughs> so I, I feel mm. like y'all already know the answer to this question, but um, you know, I'm holding it down. We'll, you know, I'm waiting for 2021 to be honest, but yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's go ahead and get started. So I'm going to throw this question to Stephanie to have her kick it off. So Stephanie, 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 where in the world are you located? I am in Harare, which is in Zimbabwe. How long have you been there? I've been there for about seven years now. So moved here following university and kind of the couple of years post-university working. 
um, and then I moved back home. Yeah. And so I think we, we kind of need to back up and start with your story. So obviously you're a third culture kid. So can you tell the audience a little bit about your TCK experience? Okay, so my dad was in oil and gas for the majority of his career. And because of that, he used to get moved around the world, basically. So I was almost born in Nigeria, but born in Zimbabwe, which is my passport country. Um, Then we moved to Malawi in my very early childhood, came back to Zimbabwe. And then after that came kind of the more European years. So we were in France, then we came back, then we were in East Africa. We did Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, From there, I moved to the UK. That's where I did university and worked for a couple of years. And then I came back. Oh, my goodness. And Astrid, where are you located? So I'm based in Dakar, Senegal. Um, That's also my passport country, but my DNA is kind of all over the place. My dad is from Benin. My mom is from Cameroon. And I have some Nigerian background coming from my dad as well. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I've been back in Senegal for about uh, eight years now. And and with your TCK experience, where where did you go around the world? So I was born in Cameroon, and then we moved to Niger, Ethiopia, Equatorial Guinea. Um, one year in Senegal, and then we went to um, Eswatini then Madagascar, and then I went to Italy for my university, spent six years there, and then decided, quote-unquote, to come back, quote-unquote, home. Uh, <laughs> years ago. Right? And so I think what I always found really exciting and, and really interesting about your experience is that most of your TCK experience was in Africa. Now, was that intentional on your father's part with his work, or how did that end up being the case? Yeah, I think my dad, my dad used to work for the UN, but he decided very early on that he didn't want us to necessarily go and have that European experience too early into our uh, childhood. He really wanted us to be as grounded as he could possibly make it um, into um, our African origins, which I'm not sure how that worked out really, but um, <laughs> he tried. He really wow. wanted us to be, you know, like, you know, to have a better sense of who we were before we would expand uh, and be in Europe or other places. Um, yeah. So that's that was a deliberate choice for my dad. And that's, you know, I don't think that's something we often think about. And I know, Stephanie, this would still apply to you with some of your moves, but Often when we think about third culture kids, I don't think we often think about them moving within African countries. I think often we think about going and we often don't think of them about being African. And I'm I'm just Mm -hmm. curious, even with Astrid's experience, but your experience, Stephanie, what, what was that for you? Um, I definitely agree. Um, People kind of assume if you're a third culture kid and, you know, by extension, if you're an expat, which is a whole other kettle of fish, that you're coming from the Western world to other Western countries. Um, They don't think about you as being African or black. um, And really, a lot of people kind of make assumptions about you without really asking a lot of questions. Mm. So, for example, being in university... Um, in a school that had a lot of third culture kids in it, but Mm -hmm. other people wouldn't assume you were a third culture kid. So people speak to you, for for example, and my accent was very American, a lot less American now, but people would then just assume, oh, you're an American person. 
And then it's kind of like, no, I have a whole rich history and story just like these other white kids that you kind of assume that, that they're exotic or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So even just not even assuming that we fall into that category. Oh, exactly. and, if, and if we yeah. do, because both of you have had really mobile childhoods. If we mm-hmm. do, it's often, oh, you move to just one place, which is still a third culture experience, but not yeah. to the extent of five, six, seven countries. What well, what were you seeing? I think Astrid, now you're a TCK within predominantly black countries. And I think that's the part that's always been like my big flag. I was like, so how how do you think your experiences were a little bit different or how are they the same just moving within Africa? Well, there's, there's well, that's a whole, it's, it's a loaded question, actually, I think. Yeah. Um, the, first, the first thing that I think about is the fact that, you know, even within like my African peers, because I went to a lot of international schools. So there was a lot of people yes. who looked like me and a lot of people who also didn't look like me. Right. So yeah. there was a bit of that like diversity kind of situation from the time I was like two, three, four years old. So yeah. I've always been surrounded by that kind of thing. I think what was always most difficult for me uh, when I was growing up was coming home and having to explain to some people who I was. It, it always sounded to people like I was showing off. Where all I was just trying to explain was this is just my story, right? So there's always this notion that like, you know, when we think about, you know, people who are moving, you don't think about people who look like us. But there's a lot of people who were just like me, who look just like me all around and all the, you know, in all the different places that I went to. But coming home was always hard because people just assumed that I was just saying things to folks, like, you know, talk about where I grew up or where I was, and people just didn't understand that. But with regards to the assumptions that people make when you're outside of Africa, what Stephanie said is dead on. Like, people always kind of assume that you're just African. Like, somehow it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, all, that's all there is there. And it's like, yeah, but I'm, a, I'm an African with a little bit of a twist because actually, first, Africa is very diverse, and I have experienced all those different parts of Africa all around my my uh, my childhood so you know it, it was always very difficult to have to explain to people um who I was and what I was about without having to fall into one specific box whether that was within you know uh, people who were at home or people who were outside of the continent that I had to encounter later on in university for example how old were you during your first move that you remember like three maybe less than three yeah. Three. About three. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, less than three actually, because cause my parents moved to Niger when yeah, about two actually, because that's where they got married. Yeah, I was two. And then how long how long were you in Niger? For three years. Okay. And then we and moved s- to Ethiopia for three years. Yeah. And then Stephanie, how old were you on your first move? I was also about two. And where'd you go? Um, to Malawi. And how long in Malawi? Malawi was just about a year. And so I'm, I'm curious, because both of you are younger than me, and I, I heard the term third culture kid probably in my later high school years, and that's when the term was really starting to blow up. When did you guys first understand or even hear that term TCK? For me, it was um, in university. Um, I think being in a school, once again, which had a lot of third culture kids in it, um, I was taking, I think it was a psychology course or something. And my professor was very, she she was a third culture kid herself. So it was something that she loved to speak about. And then she kind of went into the psychology of that and yeah, explained it a bit more. 
Oh, okay. So I, for some reason, I thought it would have been earlier because I know both of you are products of international schools. So maybe I'm wrong. What no, I, <laughs> Go ahead. It was so normal in school. We didn't have a name for it. You know, Thank kind you. of coming back to what Astrid was saying, where on one hand, yes, you can pinpoint all the ways that you were different, but in a, in a lot of ways, there were other people just like you and your story wasn't so extraordinary. So I don't really ever remember in school any teacher saying, okay, this is called third culture kid and this is what it means. Mm. It was more as an older person kind of starting to unpack some of those things, especially because we had a lot more students that weren't third culture kids as well that were being yeah. exposed to strange people that they had never really mixed with before. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. We're so strange. <laughs> you know, but you make you make a fair point, to be honest. Like I I don't I don't remember ever having a term for it up until about like university years. I want to say maybe like junior year of university. I came across uh-huh. um, a post from uh, I think his name is Brian uh, Boyer, like some Canadian TCK um, person yeah. who um, who you know who's who had like this group that was going on, and I was like, wait, there's a name for people like me. <laughs> it just felt like I was like, oh my god, finally, you know, like feeling like I was dissociative, you know, because 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 what's really strange about the TCK experience, at least when you don't have a word for it or a sense of um, how big the community can be. Mm-hmm. You have the impression that after a while, you've sort of like imagined your life experience somehow because nobody else, except for the people who were there, can actually validate what ha- like mm-hmm. who you are and what you're about. And so every time you keep meeting people who are non-TCKs and you try to explain the complexity of being a TCK, you're met with such... Um, I don't know what, what the word is. Like, people just sort of like, what is this? And yeah. you don't have a word for this. And so yeah. it, it, I ha- I went through like a major like identity crisis uh, yeah. towards like 18, 19, uh, where I was just like, I don't, I don't understand. And I don't know how to make people understand who I am anymore because I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. And when I finally yeah. got the terminology, I was like, where are my people? Um, right. And that's kind of mm-hmm. how I ended up on the, the TCK chat situation. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think you said something powerful because it's, I mean, I've, I've gone through it where, especially when I was in college and that's a prime time for it or university, depending on what you call it, where you're in the world, where I just thought to myself, okay, I've just had this entire experience for most of my life. And then all these people have no idea what I'm talking about. And more importantly, most of these people don't necessarily care, right? Because mm-hmm. they they are living their lives. My life, I could have been recounting a movie for all they could have, mm-hmm. been, you know what I mean, for what yeah. they could have cared for. And it, yeah. it is something. And, and I think both of you have touched on this, even in your earlier statements about what people assume who you are. And, and, that's, and that's a conversation I've had when I came back to the States, because as someone who's black and you know, we've got a pretty complicated racial history here, everything gets washed away and it starts with, you're just black, but the fact that you have all these other identities. And so I'm, I'm curious for both of you and whoever wants to take this question, um, especially, and I want to kind of split it in two. So let's talk about first split navigating majority black spaces. And then we'll talk about non, non-black spaces. So as a TCK, you've, you've lived in all these different places, 
But obviously, if you're in a black country, for example, you you physically present like the majority, but you're not. How is that a challenge for you? I mean, especially in the countries where you are. I mean, most of these countries you are not from. How is that? How is that a challenge? Or what were the nuances to that experience? Mm-hmm. I think for me, that's actually a tricky question because being in Malawi as a two-year-old is probably the last time I was among people that could be confused as being my people. If you go to Ethiopia, if you go to Eritrea, yes, they're black, but they're a totally different ethnic group that look totally different and they'll pick you out of the crowd instantly. So for the majority of my life, even on the African continent because of where we were, it was a situation where I couldn't be confused for a local it was very obvious that I wasn't local. And even if I w- was black and they were black, it came with its own biases and assumptions from the local people mm-hmm. because they have their own view of their ethnicity and their ethnic group, and mm-hmm. you don't fall into that. So they'll be projecting a lot of ideas about blackness and Africanness, which you know Africans also consume and internalize, but it becomes an us and them kind of situation, even though they're also black. And I think we so need- actually being in France or being in the UK, they might say, "Okay, she's French or she's English," because they have black people there. But I never mm-hmm. got confused for an Ethiopian or an Eritrean. And I think that part we need to totally unpack because I think for folks who. You know, I, I do talk to a number of um, expats, black expats who aren't coming from the African continent. Just the the strength and the power of ethnic identity on the continent. Like we, if you've lived on the continent, you know this. Is that you could have fifty black people in a room, but they're all going, "Oh, you're this tribe," or "These are your people." Like they're like, "You're not one of us," and it isn't even. It isn't even because you're like American. It's just you're just not. Mm-hmm. You are not yeah, from and the land. That, yeah, <laughs> continent-wide, because, you know, my sisters and I, we always joke that, is this because we are African or because we're TCKs, that you kind of get really good at unpacking what someone looks like they fall into, what category they look like they fall into. So you get very good at saying, oh, that's, that person's probably from North Africa, or this person mm. is definitely Southern African, or they're probably East African or West African. So within our own continent, we're very good at saying, okay, who's probably in a group and who isn't? And I I think that's a powerful statement because I think people need to hear it isn't just if you're an American or Canadian coming from somewhere else. I mean, we could do that to other Africans. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I... I learned early on um, that I couldn't fit in whatever, um, whatever, like in the local, whatever local mold it was. It, it became very, like, very apparent to me from very young that, like, this was just. I was never really going to fall into any of these things. It didn't matter how hard I tried. You could learn the language. You could, you could be friends and all that kind of stuff. But you, you just, and also because after. Because our identities are so mixed by the by the influence of the different places that we've been into, it becomes very very obvious that we, no matter how much we try, we're not the same. 
You do you know what I mean? It's like we think differently, we we consume different kind of content, we you know we interact differently, we have different sets of beliefs. I also happen to to, to come from a family that's also biconfessional, so my parents have two different faiths. My dad is Muslim, my mom is Christian, and that also created wow. a whole lot of other kind of conversations that needed to you know wow. within the family and outside of the family about like what does this mean? What is mm-hmm. this child? Like, you know what I mean? And yeah. so there was a lot of like, there was always going to be a lot of different um, identities that I was going to carry with me. And I understood very early on that I could play some parts, but I could never play all parts authentically because I didn't have mm-hmm. the full range of whatever culture, my own, my own cultural background yep. was and whatever, and all the other influences that I got were also incomplete um, influences, if you will, because they were not mine a hundred percent there was things Mm -hmm. that I acquired because of my interactions so yeah like so in Africa we do get like we do have that sense of yeah but you're not exactly like (laughs) you may may call yourself uh Mm -hmm. Senegalese but you're not exactly like me like like, it's not you know what I mean um and and for and for some time it's really heartbreaking because you because while you're you're building your own identity which is mixed and it's for for reasons that are not your own you you're trying really hard to figure out where you can actually anchor yourself and to be honest I I've understood that there was no real place where I could truly anchor myself as a in terms of culture and identity so I've learned that like people just have to accept that I'm a mix of all these incomplete but kind of beautiful pieces of puzzles that go together or. Or, you know, and or just, you know, keep, keep walking because this is not this is not happening. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, that's how, that's how it's that's how it's been for me. Yeah. Now, do do either of you because now I'm just talking about myself here. Do either of you speak at your ethnic or tribal languages of either parent? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, so I, I speak Fana. Both of my parents are Shana and I speak Fana. Yeah. Okay, so and I, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking for you, Stephanie, probably what made it easier is that your parents were of the same, uh, mm-hmm. probably the same ethnic or the same, or there's a shared um, language that they both spoke that was outside of English. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it might have helped. I mean, my mom was definitely the one who was more passionate about making sure that we could still speak the language. I remember mm-hmm. being seven years old in Paris and she's bringing up Shauna textbooks that she brought on a suitcase, yeah. wow. you know, that's awesome. no, like, that's cool. let's have lessons. That's you know? pretty badass. Um, but... <laughs> The thing is, I really feel that my language skills have mostly grown since moving back post-university. Right. So they were okay, you know, before. They were they were passable. But <laughs> there's so many nuances to speaking a language, you know. You have to be able mm-hmm. to banter with people. You have to be able to, like, make conversation, you know, right. small talk. Right. <laughs> that right. doesn't have an aim, you know. You have to know the local memes and the jokes that are going around right. and that kind of thing. So... Um, my dad, compared to my mom, my dad mostly spoke English. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was just force of habit because my mom didn't work for the majority of my growing up. Okay. My dad was the one having to go out and navigate the corporate spaces. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, you know, English to him was like, even to this date, I would consider my mom to be more of the champion of the language skills. And well, and the reason I bring that up, because I should, I wonder if you're in the same boat as me, is that, and I think you are, my parents were not in the same tribe. 
So they did not speak the same language to each other. So English was the language that was spoken at home. And I think that yeah. if you have yeah. if you have a family where the parents speak the same, because I just did, it's funny, I just did an interview with a couple, uh, not, with the wife part of the couple, but where they're Jamaican and they speak Patois to each other and they're rural Japan and the child's first language is Japanese, <laughs> but she's picking up Patois because the parents, they, yeah. they are speaking it, you know what I mean? But I think that if, mm-hmm. if the parents, they're to, you know, their language isn't the same, like their mother tongue, yeah. then yeah. unless mm-hmm. one parent does what your mother did, which is still, I think, amazing, yeah. is, is, is really like make sure. And I, because the reason I bring this up is that I'm wondering if when any of y'all went home, home, <laughs> if the issue came up with relatives, Absolutely. The thing is, my mom tried. She she tried really hard, but she wasn't showing off about my language skills to anybody. You know what I mean? And we had various levels because I'm one girl. I have three sisters, so there's four of us. And we have varying degrees of proficiency going from totally fluent to like, I can understand, but I can't speak a word kind of thing. So. It absolutely came up. And it was one of those things that added to the re-entry shock, you know, because immediately the moment you land on home soil, people are expecting the bare minimum is right. for you to be able to converse in the local language. Right. right. So it's one of those very visible things. Yeah. Immediately, you can tell if someone speaks or doesn't speak. So right. already these expectations of like, no, but you are supposed to be one of us. Therefore, yeah. you're supposed to be speaking like this. So it becomes a point of friction immediately. And even when you try, this is the thing, coming back to the whole, you can never be enough. You can never play the part well enough. You can just be you. Because you can try your best, you know, with the best of intentions, and someone will still say to you, ah, you pronounced that word wrong. You know, nice try, but like, you should have done this cultural thing and not that cultural thing. You know, you yeah. tried, you know, you tried, I see yeah. you tried, but actually, um, you know, and it comes with a whole, you know, the culture of the home and so many cultural practices that we pass on that are tied to language. You know, if you say the wrong thing, you might even perform the wrong thing at the same time. So mm-hmm. you totally go off on a whole other path. To be to be fair, in my in my experience, it's been a bit different. So my parents were not intentional about teaching us um, any of their own languages because they came from two different countries mm-hmm. and therefore the only language they had in common was French. And then there was also the whole conversation, like and my parents, I think sort of went like, we're just going to walk on eggshells here because we've got the language thing. We've got the faith thing. So it was always like, you know what? We're just going to see what happens. You know what I'm saying? So we did the whole French. We learned French. Um, the French is my mother tongue. And then we did English when we, as, we, as we started moving around and stuff like that. And so my parents were never intentional about what they were going to teach us in terms of language skills uh, and that kind of stuff. Because I think they were just really afraid of who was going to take over and what it was going to mean for the other side of the family, possibly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Suddenly you're only learning one language and not the other, and suddenly you're only practicing one faith and not the other. So they were all like, eh, we're just going to see what they want to do about that. You know what I mean? I really wish um, that they had there was a little bit more intent about this, because I think that my parents assumed that because we were growing up in Africa, we were going to have a lot of African values and African culture um, centered into, into us, but I think they, they probably didn't realize that there was also a little bit of active um, 
passing down that they also had to do as opposed to just watching us grow in these different environments so like you know there was a lot of things where it's like you come home and then you're like oh you know i i think x y and z about certain things and my friends are like where'd you learn that from it's like well my surroundings and you know because they didn't enforce certain things um it, it got a little bit more difficult in that sense for me the re-entry was not as difficult in terms of language as in like with my relatives, you know, um, I have a very small family. My, the, my dad's side of the family is quite small in comparison to my mom's side of the family, where there's like 300,000 people. Because uh, we're know, Cameroonians, so... we're small but mighty, we reproduce. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so there's, there's a lot more people on that side of the family. Um, but here in Senegal, it's, you know, only we can count, you know, about like 10 major key players, if you will, and that's about it. But, and most of them speak French, so that issue was not necessarily a problem. Um, but for me, I think what was mostly hard um, in, upon re-entry is, again, being faced with the fact that I was so different from um, Senegalese people as a whole, and that I, I've always known that people wouldn't, like, have difficulty accepting me. Like, even, like, you know, when I have to go and renew my passport, people are like, what's his last name? Oh, that's not Senegalese. How the hell did you get this passport? I said, dude, of all the, all the passports I could possibly, you know, <laughs> you know, COVID, this is not the one. Right. But it's fine, you know what I mean? So, so there's a sense of, like, you know... Um, not having been completely accepted also uh, by by Senegalese in general as a Senegalese person, and then me deciding that, you know what, that's fine. Um, I am who I am, and that's fine. And so I guess there's a part of me that's also sort of like decided that I didn't necessarily want to try too hard either to mingle anymore. Because at the end of the day, it's like, no matter how hard I try, I'm always going to be rejected. I've learned this from, you know, from early on. And so now it's just like, this is who I am. Take that, leave it. It's cool. Um, and we're just going to go with that. So my re-entry was more difficult in that sense that I had to affirm that I just wasn't going to try to submit anymore or try to conform anymore because this was, you know, this was a bit of a hostile environment for me. <laughs> Stephanie, did you, you look like you had something you want to add to that. Um, I, I just really loved the point that Astrid made about um, that when it comes to parents, they had to be aware that you have to be active in passing down language skills because I, I saw that growing up as well. You know, try as you might, if you have one lesson a month or every couple of weeks, you know, for half an hour, it's not enough mm -hmm. to make up for not living amongst a culture and amongst a language. Um, so that's one frustration that maybe speaks more to parents of TCKs um, mm. that I could see in my own life growing up because, you know, parents have this hope or this vision of what their kids are going to be. And a lot of time, you know, language and culture are a big part of that. So it's, it's one of those things where you kind of have to grow to accept that, okay, if I'm raising a child, you know, in a totally different country, in a totally different culture, there's no way I can expect them to speak and act like someone who has never left this very specific location, you know. So that's something that parents need to learn to release and to accept and to stop pressuring TCK kids because they already fail people enough in a day. Yeah. <laughs> And, and to be fair, like also, it's like it's really funny because my parents always had this vision that I was going to come home. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they were like, "You're going to come back? Of course you're going to come back. That like, you're going to go and do your studies in Europe and all that kind of stuff. But you're going to come back." I I didn't mm -hmm. think I was going to come back, and I ended up coming back. But they always had this this dream and aspiration that I was going to come back. But there was no active. Um, 
you know, um, yeah, there was no active passing down on mm. their part, which is not their fault. I think that, again, if you, they had no idea, I think, what it was mm. going to mean to raise a TCK. You know, yes. I, now that I'm a TCK, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I mean, there's certain things I, I with, because of my experience, I'm aware of, and I, you know, I probably would do a little bit differently, but honestly, like, how the hell do you do this? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, there's a lot of things that just were in books. We didn't have the terminology ourselves until like we were 18 or whatever. Like how could I possibly expect my parents Mm -hmm. to figure this out either? So to be fair, you know, um, that that's also part of the thing. And then also, there's also this thing about also immigration in general, or, you know, being in other places is like, you, you don't, sometimes you also want to, to be a person who, who is, um, mingling with the locals and so affirming just your own identity as such is also preventing you from actually immersing and having that experience with the locals right and so i think my parents also were trying to some extent to not necessarily keep us as outcasts like you you know we're like we're we're a senegalese family moving to ethiopia but we're going to you know uh, mingle with the locals, eat the food, that kind of stuff, and not necessarily assert that we're Senegalese, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think my parents tried uh, wherever we went to at least make sure that we were going to be interacting with the locals in that sense, embracing the food, imp- embracing the music, and that kind of stuff. So there were, I think there was that part of them that, that was sort of a, a, a weird juggling act that they had to do as well. And so I want to ask this question of both of you. Um, did both of you, for your, what we would call in the U.S. K-12, the rest of the world primary, secondary education, did both of you attend strictly international schools? No. Um, for the time that I was in Zimbabwe, I was in a local school. Okay, so in Zimbabwe, yeah. so what age, what age range would that be for us? So Zimbabwe was like age 9 to 14. Okay. So, but, 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 you know, some of the early years, um, and then, so that was like 79 was in Paris. That was an international school. And then nine to about 14, that was a local school in Zimbabwe. And then from then on, it was international schools. Yeah. Okay. And Astrid, what was your story? Were you in international schools the whole Mostly, I think I've had like a couple of passes, maybe when I did kindergarten and uh, sixth grade, uh, where I was in local schools. But other than that, they were mostly international schools. And in terms of the communities that you guys lived in, were you wherever you were, were you in? And I, I feel like I know the answer for maybe Africa. I don't know about for Europe, but were you mostly in expat communities where you were residentially living or were you living just in the general community? Um, in Europe, it was in the general community. That's what um, university years, it was a bit international because, you know, amongst other students and stuff like that. Um, but also, I think in Africa, um, at least in my experience, the whole apartment block thing, is it's not really a fave. So for the most part, you are technically, (laughs) you can say you're technically amongst local people, but you have like a house, you know, it's walled and gated, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I I would say the same. (laughs) That's the thing. Yeah. Cause it's it's sort of hard to delineate, delineate, but it's, 
Because I know that when I was living, like when I was growing up, we were in, it's an, it was like where a lot of expats lived. I mean, it was in the city, but it was also the houses gated, all the stuff. And yeah. so I'm trying to try to get that, that, that marker. All right. We're going to go ahead and take a break at this point, And then we're going to come back and we're going to pick up talking about navigating non-black spaces. guys so here's a conversation that I, I i really wanted to pick up on um because we you know as most people probably have heard or at least know at this point we are all products of international schools and i am very curious about your experiences at international schools one of the conversations that we're seeing right now um which is, I would say, another outgrowth of the George Floyd protests and really looking at social justice, racial re- reconciliation and, 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 and racism across the planet is, is what were your experiences as Black African CCKs at third culture kids, as third culture kids? Because um, every international school has a history as to why they were created. And, and so they may or may not reflect the realities of some of us who went there, but I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Where to begin? <laughs> I like that, I like that um, silence of, yeah, uh, <laughs> where am I going to go? It's, yeah, it's a lot to unpack. Huh. Okay, so for me, um, what really stands out is my experience as a seven to nine-year-old living in France. So I think that international school, I think of all the international schools I went to, they were all very Western centric, first of all. So, you know, I even joke that, oh, if you want to talk to me about history, I know Germany's history. Okay, that's what I do. And that's literally because you talk about, okay, Franz Ferdinand, you know, going into World War One, going into the rise of Hitler, going into World War Two, you know, and then Cold War. And then that's like where it ends. So they were all very Western centric, but that particular school, um, I think they didn't do a good job of helping children to understand and navigate our differences. So we like to pretend that, you know, kids don't notice anything. You know, if we don't tell them anything, maybe they just won't notice. And then they somehow won't pick up prejudices along the way. But they still have biases. They still repeat the racist things you say at home, you know. So it kind of leads me to a lot of intertwined things about blackness, which, you know, in this case is hair is the specific anecdote that's coming up, which we love to pretend is not political for black people. But it is. Um, I remember going to school. I used to take the school bus with my sister. Um, We had natural hair at the time. And my mom loved to put it in like two puffs, which kind of looked like, you know, Mickey and Minnie, you know, mouse for anyone who doesn't know who Mickey and Minnie are. So we went to school, you know, you're very proud, very confident of how you look, etc. And the kids just started picking on us about the way our hair looks. You know, you look like Mickey Mouse, this, that, and the other thing. And it was relentless to the point that we started begging my mom to relax our hair. And that led up to the first time that we ever relaxed our hair. Because it just felt like this is such a visible difference and it's such a 
bone of con contention amongst my classmates. I'm the only black kid in the class to begin with. You know, it's a very visible point that, you know, in your child's mind, this is what's leading to people not being able to accept me the way I am. It's because I'm actually supposed to be like this, but I'm like that. So all those elements, you know, you're a dark skinned person on top of it. You're not, you know, a light skinned person who happens to be catching racist, you know, tones, etc. So being an African, you know, with natural hair, with your dark skin, you know, there was no point that I remember us having some kind of curriculum that says, these are where people in the world come from. These are the different mm -hmm. ethnic groups. People can look like this or can look like that. You know, we had International Day where you kind of wore your national dress and like ate some food from Japan or whatever. Right. But you know, they didn't really do enough to kind of nip some of those biases that form really early in the bud. Hmm. You know, I think I think part of the reason is because when we talk about international schools, we also have to talk about um, social class. It's mm. not every black kid who's going to end up in an international school because these schools are flipping expensive, yep. right? So, so the reason nobody ever thinks about putting more history that's related to Africa and other things, you know, or the history of other black and brown people is because, you know, at the end of the day, this is not for us. In, ge in general, the public that attends these schools, the kids who attend these schools are not supposed to be a majority black and brown people. If you are, you, you only get to those schools if your parents are working in, you know, in, in private companies that can afford, you know, that can have them afford to get to send you there. Otherwise, you know, this is not, we were not the, we were not the audience, <laughs> unfortunately, mm. for those schools mm. to begin with, you know, um, so I, I, I second your point about the whole conversation about how much more, sorry, there's a, <laughs> no, we oh, we can hear it. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. It's it's reality. This, but anyway, yeah, yeah this, this you won't be able to edit out, so I'm gonna wait until I make the point. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. Okay. I was saying, uh, you know, um, the 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 reason why that you know, there's a reason why we don't hear about you know, we don't learn about all of our our own history in those schools. It's because we were not the audience for it. And then at the end of the day, it's like, you know, history is sort of always written by the winners, if you will. And if you're going yeah. to a school that's meant to be an elitist type of school, or at least a school, a school that's meant for a, a certain segment of the population, then, you know, uh, we fall at the bottom of the chain. So I, I second Stephanie's point about the fact that I happen to know a lot more about European and American history and politics <laughs> than I know about my own country, unfortunately, because of the way that, you know, the school system was set up. But I also want to talk about like other sort of like um, uh, more insidious ways in which you discover that you're very different. So for most of my of, of my childhood, I, you know, I I don't remember ever feeling like I was that different. I knew that like I was black, as in like I knew that being black was sort of some sort of a, a, a characteristic, not that it was there was a, so, a social structure to being black, right? Mm -hmm. And then I went to to Madagascar where everybody was sort of like, oh no no, you're black, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Because like in Madagascar, they they have it's it's they have a sense of like saying that they're not Africans because they're off of on yeah. the island and they 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 really want to distance themselves from Africa as a whole, right? They also happen to have majority in, in majority like um, straighter, silkier hair and that kind of stuff. So they really, you know, I, I experienced very quickly that I was like, oh no no, you're really not like us. And I was like, there was two families I think in the school. <clears throat> who were black and now, you know, surrounded by, you know, other Europeans and uh, other Asian, Southeast Asian um, people, students at school. And then <laughs> at one point uh, during the, the school year while I was there, there was this other black family that showed up and there was a guy who was about my age. And suddenly everybody was like, ooh, Astrid will finally be able to have a boyfriend. And it was the first time it, it, I was like, wait, what do you mean? So it, it never occurred to me up until that point that I was only supposed to be dating people who look like me. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying, right? So, so it's, it's very, very um, insidious in this way that those kids would have already picked that sort of stuff up. And I wasn't necessarily as aware of the code, apparently, you know, that apparently I was limited to, uh, my choice was limited to that one single guy. I forget if he's actually a nice guy um, who happens to be black. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, right? So, mm-hmm. so there, there are a lot of initiatives, like, you know, the International Day and that kind of stuff where we're supposed to have these kumbaya moments and all that kind of stuff. But to be honest, like, there is no real um, place for uh, black and brown students to really feel like they also have... Um, they're, they can truly be seen in the system. You kind of are seen only because of your social class. It, you match because you can pay the dollars to get here. But other than that, you're basically like, you know, completely taken out of the, the whole curriculum and that kind of stuff. So it was a very particular experience for me, but towards the end of my, like, of my childhood, not at the beginning, I'm thankful for that because I think it would have been really, really difficult for me to, on top of all the other issues that I had about my own identity and the culture and not being 100% anything, um, how difficult it would have been to just have been so aware so soon about the construct of being Black. Mm. Let me ask you this question because... Um... I mean, what what both of you said was insanely powerful. You both left your international schools and you went to university in the West, right? Mm -hmm. Stephanie, you went to the UK. Astrid, you went to Italy. Is that correct? Yes. Correct. Okay. I think I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Did you, whether through the school or the agencies that your parents worked for, so I know UN, oil and gas, com- private companies, whatever, are, or through your parents, did you receive any kind of formal or informal training or preparation for the fact that you are now transitioning to going to the West with both of you coming from Black countries, even though you were in international schools there? Was there any kind of conversation, any just like heads up, <laughs> no, I, I barely knew how to apply. <laughs> I didn't know how to apply to vote. Never mind. <laughs> like, I literally had to have the principal look at my file and be like, why is there a chunk of information missing? You know, let's do something about it. And I was like, oh, do I need that? <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, to, to be honest, right? Okay. So, like, my parents had no idea how to, to navigate the system because they didn't this is not the system that they use in order to be able to go abroad for my dad's case at least because he went to study um, in Europe and uh, in 
in France and I came back. This is not the system that I was in. I went to a, an American school by the time I was in high school, right? My parents were just like, well, was, like, what is this? Whatever. So they trusted that the, <laughs> that the you know, the, I forgot the name of the counselors, people. school the counselors. counselors. There you go. Thank you. The counselors counselor. would, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, the counselors would be able to help me understand what, you know, what was up. So my counselors did a good job at telling me, you know, this is what you need to do. Here's where you need to apply. And here's the, you know, all the process type of stuff. But nobody really had a conversation about, you know, navigating white spaces. I suppose they assumed that I already kind of already had maybe a little bit of that experience or maybe assumed that, oh, just didn't think about it, period. Right. Because it's not unless you unless you are uh, from a, a minority or marginalized group, you don't think about what it's like to operate in these really uh, in these different spaces that are super for, for you, the norm. Right. <clears throat> so I don't, nobody's ever, came, like, no, nobody's ever come to me and said, oh, yeah, um, and by the way, right, you are in Africa here. It's going to be different, you know, when you move. But, but to, be, <laughs> to be fair, though, you know, I feel like I had a lot of insight already from the moment that I, it, it occurred to me that I was actually Black. Even though I didn't quite understand what it really meant, right? Like, I was like, yeah, okay, so it seems like there's something about being Black uh, that I need to be paying attention to. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and so I understood that, you know, there were certain ways that, you know, I would have to either, like, uh, behave, code switch, and that kind of stuff. But, to you know, to, in order to be able to make people uh, less uncomfortable. And so it was never really about... Um, so there was never a guided like conversation about how you navigate those spaces. You just realize very quickly by by being around so many different people, and when you are in predominantly white spaces, that there are some things about you that you somehow need to tone down or just not mention. Um, and so you just you just go about it that way, you know. Um, and funny story, like when I went to Italy, I knew like Italy is not like the UK where, you know, I, you expect to see a lot more black people or like in France where you expect to see a lot more black people. Like I knew when I went to Rome that I was going to see a lot of black people. Right. But I don't think I, I don't think it ever occurred to me how by how much. Right. And, and you know, I navigated most of those years like being, you know one of the very few people that I would come across or whatever. And it didn't really shock me per se, because I came in there prepared that I was going to be in a minority. But one of my aunts came to visit me and she was at a, at a workshop and she came for a week. And, you know, we went out and about for a couple of days and whatever. And at one point we're in the streets and I see her freaking out, like going completely apeshit because she just saw another black person for the first time in five days. And she's like, oh my God, you know, and another person was like, oh my God. And then it turned out, you know what I mean? And they were just going completely crazy about the fact that they hadn't seen somebody that looked like them. But I, you know, because I, I basically went there prepared that I wasn't going to see myself type of thing. It didn't occur to me how like how little of these encounters I was going to have. Do you know what I'm saying? And so other people, other black people had to kind of like, hello, girl, have you noticed that you're really kind of one of the only people out here? Uh, you know what I mean? Like in order for me to realize how, how, how odd it had been for me to just kind of navigate in these sort of spaces. That is... 
I, I mean, I've, I've had that moment where I've been traveling around and it's only me. And then, I mean, it's the international, oh my God. <laughs> I don't even know if you speak the same language. I, I've been in countries where I don't think me and the black person speak the same language, have had the same experiences at all. And I'm like, oh my God, is that you? And then the funny part is people, the people on the street are like, do like, they know each other? No, no. But this person right here, this is my person. No, no. I, well, then, so here's the thought, though, because this is becoming this conversation about it within international schools. How do you prepare students? Because you're right. I think international schools do a great job of getting you prepared on the academic side, right? Mm -hmm. If you are trying to go to university, I mean, that's another discussion in terms of if you're not trying to go to university, but if you're right. trying to go to university, because that's like their one of their main missions, we got to get you to the, to the best fit for mm -hmm. your profile to whatever. But is there, do you think that there is some responsibility and it, and it isn't even just for those who are in the, the minority, but maybe for everyone to say, you know what? These are some of the things you're going to need to think about because let us let us be honest. Most of the international schools, and I've said this previously, when they prepare you, they're preparing you most likely to go to university in North America, Europe, mm -hmm. Australia, Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm saying maybe some parts of Southeast Asia, but probably more Australia, New Zealand, mm -hmm. Western Europe. North America. I didn't even know Asia. Yeah. I didn't even know that Asia was a was an option. And I, I, nobody I, nobody I, ever presented that to me. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm saying that I, I'm saying it now only because there are now more American style universities that have branch campuses mm -hmm. That's good. in yeah. Southeast Asia. But the, but do you know what I mean? It's still I very that. much a Western where where the, where you're being directed, right? I don't know mm -hmm. if any of y'all someone said, "Hey, you could go to university in Ghana." I don't think that no. came up. Like, okay. No. So no. my that's why I, I am asking that question. Do you think there is some responsibility? Because if you're going to, for the most part, prepare students to go to Western style universities, mm -hmm. <laughs> there is a whole culture there mm -hmm. that some of them, you know, you have to be aware. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that some, I don't think that people have that. You, you have to kind of go into a 360 kind of mode in order to realize that actually what seems normal to you may not necessarily be a normal thing for other people. I don't even think most people understand how much code switching uh, mm -hmm. minorities have to do in general. Mm -hmm just to get by, you know, whether it's like, you know, the, the accent or, you know, the, the, the lingo, you know, like, I, I don't mm -hmm. think people understand that at all. And so in order for, for that, for those, so, so those sorts of things to, to, to happen, they would have to kind of go through some sort of like awareness training of this, their own <laughs> to be like, Oh yeah, yeah. And by the way, it is true. Like we've, we haven't been paying attention this whole time, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and I think, um, it kind of intersects with the issues of class, which Astrid kind of brought up previously. I think there's very much an expect expectation that, you know, if your parents are expats, it means they made it, okay? If you're in international school, it means that you've been raised a certain way and you have become, quote unquote, civilized. You are a good black, quote unquote. So, so you content. know what's expected of you. 
Okay,、mm-hmm. you know how to conduct yourself. Okay,、mm-hmm. you know how to interface with white people. You know how to navigate white spaces, and of course, you know if you're then also downplaying the issues of race, you know that people face. Then you're kind of like, well, it's enough for you to have the education and know how to use the jargon, you know. It's enough for you to succeed.、Mm-hmm. So already there's a problem if you're thinking that someone's class can help to transcend other issues such as race. So yeah. Where did most of your educators come from? Um, in the international America, schools specifically, North、okay. America.、Um, Couple of Africans,、um, but not that many. A lot of them were、yeah. from North America, or yeah, English. Yeah, yeah England, mostly, quite a few. Yeah, mine. Mine were mostly also、uh, Americans, at least in the、um, in the American style schools I went to. Mostly Americans, and then like some locals. But usually the locals were doing like things like the language, not necessarily、mm-hmm. um, other. Other subjects, so or PE, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I and and were any of them? So if if they're coming from North America predominantly, were any of them non-white? No, some of them for me were. Okay. Yeah, but mostly white. Was, yeah, mostly white. Yeah. <laughs> So, hundred percent. She said, "One hundred percent white." What? And 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 I'm and and you know what though? And what's let's go back to it though. You were TCK predominantly in Africa. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, so, I think no, and, that and that's and that's and that's my point, right? So at some point, you, right, you 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 get to a point where you've already been navigating the space for a minute. Yeah. I don't think people understand at that point that you need some further. <laughs> You know, warning、mm-hmm, right. about what's about to jump at you because what you have in that microcosm is amplified by a million once you get out. I mean, I think it's just even. I I I think what's just even wilder is the fact that you were in international schools predominantly in Africa, and you can't remember a black educator.、Mm-hmm. I think that says a lot about not. I said that says a lot about recruitment, right?、Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have this, this sort of. I think they need to do so much better. I don't. I think that there's something about people who still believe, and this is not just in the educational world, but it's also like、oh, yeah. you know, in any other like I don't know the NGO world or whatever. This belief somehow that the non-black expertise is much more valuable, worthy.、Mm-hmm. Than the than the local black expertise,、mm-hmm. and so there's always this belief like that they'll they'll underpay the locals who then、mm-hmm. decide like why would I want to work here when I could make a little bit more somewhere else or you know just or just feeling like you're going to be completely、um, disrespected <laughs> in terms of or un- undervalued for what you bring to the table.、Um, mm-hmm. So in I saw I saw this in schools. I think that there's a lot of schools who still practice、um, certain who still have some hiring practices that benefit non-white、uh, non-black、uh, people in general or favor non-black people because there is this inherent、uh, belief that、uh, non-black expertise is more valuable somehow, you know. But then you know, like people like me go to school, we go abroad, we come back, and then at some at some point we're like, yeah, okay. So now that we've got we, this really expensive education that we have to pay for, 
um, how are you going to pay me? And then they look at you and they're like, oh, but you're local. So they undervalue your your own education as well that you went abroad to get, right? And so at the end, they still had this very double standard situation about the value of the education in itself that you get you you gained. Um you know, I sp- I'm going to speak about the NGO world because that's the one I operated in. Yeah, that's totally. Back from <clears throat> from uh, Italy, and it's just sort of like you know, I saw I saw people who were interns who were making more money than people who were on a payroll because mm-hmm. the interns were non-black and the ones who were on the payroll were black. So, so let's talk let's about talk. this though, because I think I want to take it out to the greater expat space that both of you guys have lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, were there other black families? Did you see a lot of other black, black families in the rules that your parents did? Um, what did that look like? Because obviously we've been talking about the microcosm that is the international school, but let's mm-hmm. take it, let's take it out. Like, was there as much diversity, whether it is being other African families, other black families, other brown families in the nature of the work that your families were doing? Like, what were you seeing in expat circles? Mm. Um, I think, especially in Europe, I would say that we saw more other African families. Um, So those are the ones that kind of became our social circle on a family level in a way, Um, because my dad would meet them through his work and then they would kind of become friends of the family. But I didn't really get the impression that there were many others. It was kind of like, we have found each other. (laughs) Now we are doing our African things, (laughs) kind of thing. Um, And when we were in East Africa, we really didn't know many other families at all. um, Black Mm. ones, yeah. We really didn't. And I think it got worse as my dad rose kind of in his career. Um, Uh You could kind of feel the sense more and more that there were very few at the top. And it was a very precarious position even to be in. Uh, My dad would come home often um, talking about ways that he had to assert something about his blackness or his expertise, you know, like Astrid spoke about before, um, because there were just certain ways in which people would just kind of see a black man in the room and Mm. make certain assumptions about who this person is, what their value is, what their expertise is, and whether they have a right to be in the room. You know, exactly. so I kind of saw when we were in when we were in East Africa, it was not so many other um, black families that we interfaced with. But I think I got the sense that people really respected that my dad was in a certain position, whereas now when he was kind of at the top and then having to be the boss for other white people who would even question why he's in the room, it was a whole other dynamic, even though there were more black people around. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. Astrid, what did you see? Um, when I was growing up, you know, I think I saw like a variety of different families really that my parents interacted with, or at least my dad through his his job. But there were there were a significant number of of black families that were uh involved in his in his job across the different parts of the continent that we were in. So I didn't necessarily have the impression that him being there was an oddity. Um, I think, I think that my, but I also think my dad was very careful not to project that necessarily. 
Mm. Um, and my dad, uh, my dad didn't necessarily talk a lot about the the issues that he may have faced uh, in terms of racism or discrimination in his work either. I don't think it's because it didn't happen. I think he just didn't necessarily. I think he saw, he thought this was like kind of like to be expected and did nothing to complain about, so to speak, if you will. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, but 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 I, I have the impression, like like Stephanie, that like as time went on, maybe the number of black families kind of reduced over time. But yeah. you know, but you, but in general, they were still they were still they were still there. <laughs> so so I guess my question is, did you guys? Because I always ask this question about community. So if you are, depending on where you are, if you're one of the few black families that are there, did did you did you find that your parents naturally gravitated towards those families as community, or were you able to get this kind of broad coalition of whoever was around and it was, you know, related by work? Like what was what was sort of your support networks, if you would? Um, it was mostly those other black families. Or if we were going to church at the time, then they would kind of try to be social with those people. Um, But I think the biggest thing that we got out of all those years was a stronger family unit amongst ourselves. So we had our own rituals, our own, like, we were our own support network, you know, um, and you kind of knew that, you know, come weekend, you know, we're going to go do this place, we're going to do these activities kind of thing. So my parents didn't really emphasize that the social aspects needed to come from other people. You know, we had each other and we could explore with each other or you go do other activities where you meet people for the afternoon and then you leave and you go have dinner and go home, you know. So they found ways kind of to be social, but I think they wanted us to be a close unit as well. So they didn't force anything, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think my parents were about the same. I think also because it gets tiring over time. Like I, I can see now why, you know, at some point you're sort of like, eh, does the outside world yeah. really matter? We're just going to focus on yeah. this because you're like, you just keep trying. Yeah. You keep, you know, you're like, oh, I have to yeah. go out here and introduce myself again. Oh my God, hell no, it's fine. We're just going to mm-hmm. do our, you know, do our own thing. So yeah, I think when I was much younger, like we definitely had a lot more like interactions with, first it was a broader coalition of people and stuff. But I think as time went on, I think my parents just got tired of having to renew, restart, re, you know, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And they were like, no, it's just us now. <laughs> you know, um, this is Exactly. And so in a lot of ways, I think um, I've I've sort of carried that on for a while. You know what I mean? Because I understood very early on that I didn't necessarily need also the the external support system in order to sort of thrive, if you Mm -hmm. will. What was the most... Break that, though. (laughs) (laughs) What what was the most... um... What was the most challenging part, and and whoever wants to jump in, because I I think there's some pieces of your answers previously, but what was the most challenging part about going to university in the West after leaving your international school? Um, I actually really loved university, so maybe that I should preface it with that. So... Um, I definitely saw, maybe because of the type of university that I went to, and because a lot of us were TCKs, so there was a kind of mindset that none of us are local here kind of Mm. thing, which I saw was different. My sister, um, one of my sisters, in fact, two of my sisters went to university in the UK, 
but to local um, universities. And it was a totally different experience with even less support. Um, for us, it was a lot more geared towards, you know, we want to travel, we want to go see more of the continent, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I really struggle to come up with something that I think was really hard. Um, but I would definitely say, you know, when you're an African and you got that African passport, you know, you're not living on the same terms as everybody else all the time. Thank you. <laughs> That's all I can say. Passport is real. You can be a TCK and still be in the visa office every three Thank months. Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, a lot of us, our stories, you know, it's kind of who succeeded in getting the visas they wanted when they wanted them. You know what I mean? So for yeah. a lot of people, you'll find the, why did you come back home story? It's very rare for it not to contain to some degree, some kind of visa shenanigans in there. And That's I, mine. you know what? Yeah. You you brought up you brought up something which first of all I think I just need to go ahead and copyright passport privilege is real because everyone says that in every episode that I do that's not Western but here's something that I think you just really brought up and I I should I I wondered I wonder if you can answer this question um, you're both TCKs you grew up moving you're highly mobile all of a sudden now you are no longer under whatever travel documents that your family allowed you to move. How do you deal with that? Because now you're right. You have now ran up against the reality of most people and that's access. Like Mm -hmm. what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You shoot your shot and sometimes it's true. (laughs) No, no, it's true. No, it's true. But, but to be, to be honest, like actually I've come to a point in my life now where I've decided that I, unless it's a, unless I'm going for something like an emergency or like to support a friend for wedding or birth or something like this, I am no longer doing this. I'm just not doing that. Like I'm no mm. longer, if it's not work supporting my travel for a conference or whatever, well, COVID is now killing that, but you know, if work <laughs> yeah. is not, it's not supporting like some of these like visa applications or whatever, I'm just not going to go. Mm. I, there's a lot of really important, nice places in the world that do not treat the, the the African passport with the with the with that level of disrespect that like European countries or you know the US or Australia mm-hmm. treat you know the African passport. So for mm-hmm. me now I'll go and, and put money for vacation time in places where you know the where the visa is not that hard to, to get mm-hmm. but it's going to be a really nice place to go. That's been my my sort of operating um uh, system since I came back because I came back basically because you know there was all that whole pressure about having to justify why I, I was a good immigrant and I deserved to mm. stay in Italy and I looked at them and I thought but what do I even have to be in this 10 meter square whatever when I can get to <laughs> mm-hmm. the apartment that I yeah. pay you know the same price and get a bigger place and and feel like you know and not have this 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 the sword above my head that tells me that like, you know, at any point, the life that I'm trying so hard to build is going to end. So, you know, so I came home basically like leaving everything behind. I had a boyfriend there and I was like, listen, I love you, but immigration, no, but, but that was also because I came home as a, as a, as an act of survival. I was also getting really depressed about the fact that I had to fight so hard to justify mm-hmm. why I was there. And it was like, 
is this worth it for what? I've got, you know, I've got parents who love me. We've got a nice house, whatever. We'll figure this out when I come home. Like, I'll mm-hmm. figure this out. It took me a while, but I figured yeah. that out. You know what I mean? Like, And when I came back, I didn't actually think I was going to stay for this long, but I have. And I'm grateful yeah. also for the experience of being back and for the things that I was able to build by myself and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that reality is a serious one. And to be honest, me, I'm only now mostly like, at least for my own leisure time, I will only focus on places that respect me a little bit as an individual and there's a really nice places in the world where you can go with an African passport where you don't have to struggle and be disrespected all the time. I think at some point we also have to, you know, put our money and tell them actually, you know mm-hmm. what, this is not this is not it. For what? Yeah. Like I lived there. Like and I came home voluntarily. I don't I don't need to go through this horrifying system all the time. I don't my life is good here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Thank you. And you're like, Etsy. Yeah. Go ahead, Stephanie. Nice. Yeah, I, I think I've kind of been pondering whether it's kind of having traveled a lot and having the TCK um, background that helps you to reach that point mentally. Because um, definitely, I think probably continent-wide, we still have an issue of associating the Western world with success and with prosperity and proximity to whiteness and all those things. So people do absolutely anything to go out there you know even if you're an asylum seeker you know legitimately or otherwise or you're mopping <laughs> floors you know um just to tell people you made it because you live in london you know what i mean so there's something about having those experiences and having enough good experiences as well to balance and say you know what i believe that it's not inherent to my existence as a black person and as an African that I should take any kinds of treatments just to say I'm standing on Western soil right now. You know, at some point you have to think, okay, on what terms am I willing to travel? Where am I willing to spend my money? You know, what's worth it to me? What's not worth it to me? And yeah, and unfortunately that's not actually a a very common um, viewpoint by a lot of people. Oh my gosh! No, First of all, I, I didn't want that struggle. I didn't want the struggle anymore. I like seriously. I was depressed. No, no, no. Like, because at some point you have to look at yourself and go, like, you know, um, I, I wanted to. I really wanted to make my mark there, you know, and I'm willing to build my life and all that kind of stuff. I spent six years there. I worked there. I learned the language. I was dating. All that kind of stuff. Right. I was integrated. All that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like the the. What, what would we rather have? And it's true, like, you have to un, unlearn basically the whole notion about, you know, you're only successful if you're in Europe. I think where I am today in terms of my career couldn't have happened if I had stayed. Mm-hmm. Nobody was going to give Agreed. me that space. Nobody was going to look at me and say, oh, what, you're, tw-, you know, at the time, like, oh, you're 26, you want to do this? No, nah, nobody was going to pay attention to me. And mm-hmm. so coming home sometimes also means, you know, that, you come back with much more a richer bag and you come in and you say, look, you know, I can come in and, and bring what I've learned and, and, and develop what, you know, what ultimately is mine, even though you're like, at least for me, I'm never going to be a hundred percent Senegalese, whatever, but this is mine. Nobody can kick me out of this. Mm -hmm. This is here, you know? Um, And that's fine too. I love that you said act of survival. (laughs) I thought that that was like, that just jumped off in my brain. And, and Stephanie, what you're saying about almost like economic resistance, right? And the fact that, (laughs) the fact that, and the level of disrespect that you've Mm -hmm. got to figure it out at some point, 
what is important to you and and can you also make it happen and maybe not in the space that we all aspire to and i mm-hmm. i know as as we see the news and we see the global current events and we see so much happening in north america and so much happening in europe that maybe it starts to look like a revolutionary decision when you're like you know what maybe it's my circumstance that's got me on the continent now but opportunity yep. is here and you know yep. what at least i'm not being harassed and and and, and, you, know? and <laughs> you aren't being harassed you can't put a price on that though yep. oh you can't put a price on that and so i've got three short questions okay. to wrap up our session they are part of this lightning round <laughs> and i always say uh answer what comes off the top of your head Okay. So don't freak out. I always have to say, yes. don't freak out. And then people freak out. Um, no, like, what, what, are we supposed to, what are we about to get? I don't know. It's like, how bad are these questions? No. And so, and so um, I'm going to, I'll do the first one with Stephanie and then um, I'll have her answer. And then Astrid, I'll have you answer. And then I'll lead the second question with you. And then we'll, we'll go back and forth. Okay. So we don't talk to each other. Okay, cool. Okay. So first question. A big challenge is never knowing where to place a TCK. What's one country that people always assume you're from, but you're really not? Um, Nigeria or Kenya. Even in Zimbabwe, people just think I'm weird. (laughs) People will be like, what is she wearing? Why is that nose ring in her face? You're not local. So yeah, one of Nigeria or Kenya all the time. Yeah. Okay. Astrid, <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I'll say Nigeria, but it's not technically not true because I do have 25% Nigerian. <laughs> <laughs> Is it because why do they why do they think you're Nigerian? Is it just Well, actually, um, when I'm in Europe, no. well, I guess that was both of you got that. Okay. Let me go with Astrid. Okay. Okay. Astrid, go ahead. Why do they think you're Nigerian? When I'm in in Europe, people think I'm Senegalese. So that's not the issue at hand. But when I'm here, because I look like an alien somehow, (laughs) I look like I like I look like I should be here. I should I should come from here, but they're not they're never quite sure, right? So then they're like, no, it must be it must be Nigeria, because everybody in Nigeria is a little bit extra, whatever that is, right? (laughs) So 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 I take that or American And and you speak English. And you speak English, so it's or American. A lot of people have thought I was American, and I was like, "No, tell you, no, no, no." And and this is a this is a completely side side question, but I've been thinking of it. Have either of you been to the states? No, no. Okay. Here's the part that kills me, though, is the fact that you've been in international schools with American curriculum. You know so much about the history and neither of you have been to the U.S. That's that that education, though. You can see how education could travel and you've never even been near. They they will even give you the accent. You know, nothing is on limits. But they won't give you the yeah. visa. I know yeah. that part's no. the, that's the part. That's the part. No, we. I did an interview, uh, which which airs before uh, a while ago, and uh, she said I tried to come to the U.S. five times. This is why I'm in Japan. Five times. <laughs> they said no. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. Okay, Astrid. Second question. Besides your current location, and we're thinking about where you've lived previously. 
where would you live again? Maybe a Swatini? Formerly known as Swaziland, for those who aren't aware. Yes. <laughs> maybe, but, but, but maybe for the kicks, because I, I had such great memories of that time, my time there. And, you know, I guess it's just to kind of like revisit that part of my childhood. Or maybe a gotcha. Kid, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Stephanie? Um, Ethiopia is a notable mention, but I think it has to be <laughs> London for me. Um, you can't take the the nostalgia out of the thing. <laughs> and yeah, I think there's definitely a certain life stage that I experienced while I was in London. So it would be a cool place to revisit. Hmm. Yeah. London always shows up somewhere in the conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. Stephanie, best thing about being a third culture kid? Um, your empathy, I think. Your ability to just take someone as they are, know some something about what they're going through a lot of the time. You know, even if it's not like on like, you can probably relate somehow, some way. Um, I think it's just a really great lesson in just letting people be who they are and just enjoying the diversity of people. Astrid? I was going to say no boxes. Mm. You know what I mean? There are no boxes to contain people. And uh, you get to, as Stephanie was saying, you get to really like experience who they are. You get to read people a lot easier too. Mm-hmm. You don't make mistakes about that. Mm-hmm. Almost never. Because um, you, you understand very quickly. like Because you know, when, you, when you're growing up, you have to like discover very, very quickly who your people are going to be. And I don't mean like your people as black people necessarily, but like who your <laughs> friends are, are likely going to be, right? Um, you get to evaluate that much quicker. And so, yeah, the, li- like, the, li- the fact that people don't have boxes um, anymore is lovely because then you get to experience like the full range of humanness, um, you know, for what it is, the good, the bad, the ugly and all that kind of stuff as well. And you don't have to contain them. Mm-hmm. That is such a lovely way to end this podcast because <laughs> it's nice and sweet. <laughs> Thank you ladies both for coming on. I, I knew this conversation was going to be entertaining and informative and extra. And it was all of that. And I'm so glad that I know you too. Thank you for coming on to the global chatter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so, um, you will be able to follow both of them if you're looking for them on Twitter. We've got their uh, IDs or their information up in the show notes. But thank you for this episode of the Global Chatter. The Global Chatter from the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of the Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.